Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. You delve into the tales of true crime that the UK and Ireland has to offer, that are for the most part often long forgotten, harrowing and sometimes unbelievable ones, but that are all true. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My cow cat, Pigsy, is here with me as ever, and we're completed by yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show happen. It means as ever the world that you've joined us today, which I thank you kindly for doing so, and hope that as you have, then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. Now, before we pass the midway point of the Lost Boys arc, I must explain that the following week is Patreon episode week, so part 5 will be coming to you in two weeks' time. To be honest, I could really do with something that's a tad more light-hearted to work on, and not have some of these twats in my head for a bit. So, to that extent, I've deliberately chosen something that's a bit different and a bit lighter to cover for this month's bonus tale. On the subject of Patreon, and I know I am catching up here somewhat, big thanks go out to both the returning and new supporters of the show, with shout-outs here for Michael O'Connor, Louise Amanda, Samantha Collins, Paul McMenemy, Melissa Walters, Anna Hussey and Natalie Butler, plus Anna McKell and Katrina Kelly who have edited their pledges, and Mandy, each who have opted to annually support the show. Thanks so much all, it's so very kind of you to do so, and it does as ever mean the world that you have. Now, like this very kind lot, if you also want some extra enthusiast, and you fancy hearing the tales behind bonus episodes such as Mr Whiskers, The Butcher of Cumdy, Wicked Beyond Belief, or Maths, Misunderstandings and Murder, then it's very simple to do. You just head over to Patreon and look the show up there. It's got the exact same title and everything. Or you can, as always, use the ever-present link that's always in the episode show notes, and it'll take you right to it. You'll be away before you know it. So, when we left the Lost Boys last time around, Having already heard of the horrific deaths of 14-year-old Jason Swift and 6-year-old Barry Lewis back in 1985, I told you of how a completely unconnected inquiry was to lead to the breakthrough that police needed, ultimately resulting in charges being raised against six men in connection with the death of Jason Swift and the successful prosecution of four of them, Leslie Bailey, Robert Oliver, Stephen Barrell and Sidney Cook on charges of manslaughter and sexual offences against Jason, leading to long prison sentences for them. So reviled were these men for the heinous crimes they'd committed, even amongst other sex offenders on Rule 43, that they'd been attacked and beaten as soon as they began their sentences. But whilst Jason had got some form of justice, that didn't bring justice for Barry Lewis, who detectives were convinced had met his death at the hands of the same men. It was this revulsion against the gang that was to give police the help they needed to bring justice for Barry, from the unlikeliest of sources, which I shall tell you about right here. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of injury detail, sexual references, and involving sexual crimes against children throughout that listeners may find extremely disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. 
Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for the midway part of the Lost Boys arc, part 4, for an episode I've entitled, Strangers and Orchids. In the days leading up to the conclusion of the trial of those facing charges relating to the death of Jason Swift, in May 1989, two reporters from the Daily Mirror newspaper, Ramsey Smith and Ted Oliver, managed to trace Lenny Smith, who as we said didn't appear in the dock with the other four, to a flat in Savernake House, a council block on the Seven Sisters Road in Stoke Newington, where he was living at the time with the sub-editor of the Daily Telegraph newspaper. Now obscenely, unbelievably even, only a hundred yards across the road was the flat where Joan Swift still lived. The two had reportedly even been in the same electricity board office at once, though Smith had scarpered when he recognised her, and before she had spotted him. Accompanied by mirror photographer Roger Allen, around midnight one evening, the reporters knocked on the door of the third floor flat, for it to be answered by an underwear-clad Lenny Smith, who screamed at them when they announced who they were. Why don't you just fuck off and leave me alone? He wouldn't discuss anything to do with Jason Swift, not whether he was there at the time or how he felt about it, and when he threatened violence towards the party if one more photograph was taken of him, that picture was taken and the cameraman offered him to do just that. Smith, showing the pathetic individual he was, immediately shut the door, emerging again minutes later in some shabby clothing and fleeing. On the morning after the verdicts were announced against the four, that Saturday's Daily Mirror newspaper carried a photograph of the greasy-haired, half-naked Smith in his underwear, underneath the banner headline, This Man is Evil. The accompanying text related his sordid background and detailed how Jason Swift had fallen into his clutches, but we shall save all that for the Meet the Monsters part of the arc. Now, what you'll be pleased to know, and I was anyway, is that following this newspaper article being printed, a reader the following day recognised Smith loitering around outside the Stoke Newington home of a young mother with young sons, and after having a discussion, shall we say, with Smith, ended up giving him such a hiding that Smith was put in hospital, though against medical advice, signed himself out before police could speak to him. No complaint was ever raised by him against the Daily Mirror or for the reader who had beaten Smith up either. So a tiny, tiny chink of light there. Now, just because the remaining four, Bailey, Oliver, Barrel and Cook, were now locked away, unable to degrade or defile any youngsters for a number of years, they were by no means forgotten about, for there was still a great deal of unfinished business starting with Barry Lewis. The whole genesis of Operation Stranger had been that Jason and Barry's cases were linked, committed by the same person or persons, and as four such individuals had now been prosecuted over Jason, time for justice for little Barry. As such, during Leslie Bailey's first week in Wandsworth Prison after his manslaughter conviction, he had been visited by Detective Superintendent Bill Hatful once again who had questioned him two years before when he'd been arrested over Jason's death, seeing as the crimes were considered linked 
but whilst he awaited trial, the Barry investigation team could not speak to him regarding the matter. And now, two years later, Bailey was still saying nothing, but he was promised police would be back. We skip forward a couple of months now to the 10th of August 1989 and to the ground floor of G-Wing, a Rule 43 association wing for sexual offenders in Wandsworth Prison. Early that morning, prisoner B73873 Ian Albert Gabb, when he was unlocked from cell number 11, made his way immediately to the supervising floor officer and after handing him a dog-eared orange notebook from the waistband of his trousers and explaining what was inside it, was led back to the cell that for the past month he had shared with one Leslie Bailey. Gab, who was a sex offender himself, doing a nine-year stretch for two counts of indecent assault and attempted rape, was considered to be a prison-wise inmate. He'd spent long enough doing porridge to know the score, the prison code, and what he could and could not get away with. So for him to approach an officer with the demand, I need to speak to somebody about this. Whatever was in that notebook had to have some substance to it for any chance of it being granted, and a cursory look at the contents told the officer that yes, this seriously was. The police liaison officer at Wandsworth Prison was duly notified, who in turn got into Scotland Yard's Crime Intelligence Unit, where a detective superintendent there studied the report and then contacted the next name we shall come to meet in our tale, Detective Superintendent Roger Studley, the senior officer and head of detectives based at the Met's East London HQ in City Road. A celebrated detective, Detective Superintendent Studley could best be described as an energetic officer who led by example and who commanded respect, but equally gave it back to his team. He's the kind of boss that you would want to go as far as you could for. He accepted the case in a heartbeat, it being the kind that he thrived on, and that had led him to be a pioneer in the development of child protection teams working in harness with social services, and a champion for a national register of missing children and a nationwide index of those convicted of child sexual abuse. Because of the nature of what Ian Gabb had written in his notebook, it was an investigation that he felt was to be conducted in the utmost secrecy, and one that he had just the officer in mind to lead. Detective Inspector Bob Brown Now D.I. Brown had since moved on from Hackney, and was, in a twist of fate, working from Arbour Square in Stepney in East London, which, of course, fell under the remit of Detective Superintendent Studley. Calling in D.I. Brown and explaining to him the information which had come their way, D.I. Brown's ears pricked up when he heard the name Leslie Bailey. As I said, just because this lot were doing several years each for foul offences, there was still plenty more that they were believed responsible for, the police were sure they needed to face justice for, and so for another opportunity to investigate them, oh yes, we are well having some of that. But of course, one carried out in the utmost of secrecy, for if there was even any hint that a prisoner was talking to police and it was discovered, that's it, under the prisoner to prisoner code, it's game over for them, isn't it? Now, as we said, being a bit of a maverick anyway, Bob Brown was well up for this. On the morning of 16th of August 1989, 
disguised in for him a sober grey suit and complete with dog collar, the Reverend Brown was ushered into an old semi-derelict visiting area of Wandsworth, well away from the other prisoners, and where he waited in a former storeroom until Ian Gabb was shown inside. Waiting patiently until Gab handed over to him the notebook that had kicked all of this off, Brown began reading and soon became entranced even before he'd reached the end of the first page. The opening entry read as follows. First Party, September 85, Barry Lewis, aged 6. Second Party, November 85, Jason Swift, aged 14. Two parties to date attended by Bailey, all members present at both parties. Says Oliver speaks about 16 to 20 bodies so far, but he has only information on them. Some he has more, and two he knows for sure. Now says there are 25 bodies. Gab had also listed some 20 men that were involved with the same gang, 11 of which were identified by name the remainder by description only. Alongside each member's name was a list of their sexual proclivities and an index of the roles they had played in some of the most heinous and perverse things you can imagine. Included in these names were Bailey, Robert Oliver, Stephen Barrell and Sidney Cook. Brown, taking all of this in, then came across a section of the notebook headed Bodies. Here, Gab had listed some eight burial or disposal sites as had been described to him by Bailey, the list headed by Jason Swift and Barry Lewis. There was then a 13-year-old Bailey had named Stephen and an 11-year-old he'd named Paul, whose surnames Bailey could not recall, although he claimed they were both buried near a slip road in London's West End. Four other boys remained nameless, with Bailey claiming he may be able to get identities for them later, though he could recall the sites they were buried at. Walthamstow Cemetery, underneath Brighton Pier, in the grounds of a disused Hackney Synagogue, and an 11-year-old who was buried in a copse in Walthamstow. Gabbard added underneath these recollections, There are at least 25 bodies, but he needs access to Robert Oliver. He swears this is all true, and I'm inclined to believe him. That must have been a hell of a thing to read, that, wasn't it? Telling Brown how Bailey had recounted the abuse of six-year-old Barry Lewis to him, Gab went on, Fucking hell, I near killed him. I nearly fucking killed him. I don't know how I stopped myself. Bailey said he was screaming, but one of the others had his hand over his mouth. Now he'd certainly not killed him, but by this time he had struck Bailey during an argument and as a result had been moved cells. So why had Gab written this? Now I'm in no way glorifying any sex offender or anything like that, but so foul and abhorrent were the crimes that Bailey was talking about in the long hours spent locked in a cell that it had struck a chink of decency in Gab and to him this felt the right thing to do. Now recording it all down in note form is one thing, I mean the amassed evidence could have been used to inflame a murder plot against Bailey, for example, but to go to police with it? That's an incredibly risky thing for Gab to have done, 
Yet so much did he believe these lost boys Bailey was discussing needed justice, at the very least discovery and a decent burial, that this is what he did. I must also stress that Gab in no way tried to use what he now proposed to do for police as some kind of bargaining chip to earn himself privileges or remission. He asked for absolutely nothing in return. He was just compelled to do it. However the man's crimes may be inexcusable, I'd say this action was commendable. What Gab proposed was to ferry as much information to police as he possibly could. If Bailey would talk about his crimes or events he knew of or had involvement with, Gab would covertly record it all down in a notebook and pass it on to police. Who knew, it may even help bring Operation Stranger to a close. When Bob Brown reported back to his boss, he was, for want of a better word, gushing about the information he'd seen firsthand. He threw his support behind Gab's account, for names and detail tallied with what Bob Brown already knew, and so a squad to process and investigate the information Gab had provided here was now organised, the majority being made up of officers from Hackney who had worked on the Brent inquiry, who had arguably snowballed the whole prosecution in the Jason Swift inquiry. Their brief from Detective Superintendent Studley, go out and prove that this is a load of bollocks. Thus, Operation Orchid was born. Now, though Gab's notebook was impressive, it couldn't be taken solely at face value. The challenge to prove it bollocks was just that. It wasn't dismissive of it at all, just prove it wrong. But meanwhile, whilst an offer of feeding information to police that a dangerous, despicable sex killer has idly talked about whilst banged up may be appealing, for such a rare commodity would have to be. It's about as much use as a chocolate fire guard if the person willing to be the mole has just twatted the object he's supposed to get close to and been moved cells as a result, isn't it? Police had a plan in mind here though. Another meeting was now arranged with Gab, this time with Detective Superintendent Studley and Bob Brown, again in the same place where they'd met before where he was told that the information he'd recorded was being investigated and police would be taking him up on his offer. As he and Bailey could no longer share a cell, plans were now being laid with the Home Office to move prisoners around and to get Gab a new cellmate. Robert Oliver. That must have been like trying to look forward to a trip to the dentist, mustn't it? In this second meeting with Gab, the two detectives here also briefed Gab as to how he must proceed in the conversations that would no doubt be flowing once Oliver was enrolled as his cellmate. Under no circumstances whatsoever should he press Oliver to confess to anything. This had to solely come from Oliver, it to be Oliver's idea to talk. All Gab had to do here was sit and listen, not lead, remember what he was told, and then write it down. Yet it's easy enough that but it's not a job you'd fancy really, is it? They'd also arranged for Gab's information to be passed in the form of letters dropped in the wing postbox, innocently enough addressed, but with a certain spelling of a name deliberately misspelled, so that these were the letters that would go straight to D.I. Brown. At one stage, they had even considered planting a bug in cell 27 of K-Wing, Gab's new cell, alongside him transcribing recollections and admissions, 
but this had been shot down by a senior Scotland Yard officer as being something, I quote, in the realms of spy fiction. Top bosses, aren't they just all utter bellends or what? So it was solely the letters, and they eagerly awaited the first dispatch from the Golden Gift, as they'd codenamed Gab. However, he had insisted on signing himself as The Fox, which is an unfortunate choice of name, as I can think of at least two other high-profile prisoners who had been in the system too at that time, with who that moniker is synonymous. But that's what Gab was going with. And on the 3rd of November, they received Gab's first letter. It had been that afternoon that Gab had gotten a new cellmate, Robert Oliver, or Robert Cook, as he had introduced himself as he moved in, saying, The killer of Jason Swift. Oh yes, like it was some sort of a bloody badge of honour. Absolutely terrible. Oliver was still referring to him as this. There's no confirmed information that Oliver had legally changed his surname in any way. He'd introduced himself as Robert Cook, proudly, in honour of his close friend and his occasional lover, Sidney Cook, whom he regarded in some sort of bizarre father figure role and who he said when they each got out of prison X amount of years down the line, they planned to set up a home together and open a cafe. You'd go there for tea, wouldn't you? Now, Oliver was a godsend to police here, for from the moment he joined Gab in that ground floor cell, he talked incessantly. He would talk for hours on end if the mood took him. Gab wrote in that first letter, which does contain disturbing content, Bob, this guy never stops talking, which is great in many respects, but he does exaggerate quite a bit. Fortunately, it's easy to tell when he's doing it, because they are really quite fantastic and unbelievable. He's told me how he's been in prison twice before, the first time for five years, and the other time for gross indecency. He told me of a young boy, just seven years of age, that he gave £10 to for helping him to move some furniture which the boy had wanted for bike parts. The boy's mother somehow wormed her way into Robert's flat, and after staying late, put the boy in his double bed. She'd had all of the electricity to her flat cut off, and couldn't afford any of the bills. Robert claimed that she was an alcoholic, and that he felt sorry for her, the boy, his baby brother, and the family dog. He says he thought the boy was clothed, but after a few moments, he realised that he wasn't when the boy began to cuddle him and began playing with his penis. Though he told the boy to stop, the boy just said to him, Mummy told me what to do. He says that each time he's been to prison, he's been fitted up. I think it's all con talk, but I hope he'll tell me a few more tales. What do you even say to this? I don't know what I found more disturbing with it. Oliver's account here of abusing a seven-year-old boy, even sickeningly adding that the boy had claimed his mother had told him what to do, or Gab saying he hoped he would tell him a few more tales. I understand that in the context of what Gab had laid himself out to do, that this would be important, but you or I, if we'd heard anything as abhorrent, as truly sickening as that, I don't know when the next night I had a peaceful sleep following hearing it would be could you say? And undoubtedly, 
This account smacks of a mix of truth and lies. I fully believe Oliver had abused a seven-year-old boy in such a way, but as for telling the boy to stop, and him continuing regardless, I believe this is the twisted mind of Robert Oliver, blurring memory and fantasy. Gab told the officers that he was even avoiding exercise periods to swerve awkward questions from other cons about why he was putting up sharing a cell with the likes of Oliver. For one prisoner had already shouted, Kill him, Gabby, when Oliver's identity had become known. Within 24 hours, Gab was once again writing. He got right into his role here and was a prolific letter writer, saying, Like Bailey, he doesn't show any concern over the death of Jason Swift. No remorse, sympathy, pain or concern. He'd even covertly checked through Oliver's mail and his newspapers, looking for any hidden messages from his other cohorts, who were also being held in the segregation wing of Wandsworth. But the only thing of note being a copy of the Salvation Army newspaper, War Cry. However, the reason for Oliver having this was soon discovered, for page 3 of the edition carried an article warning of the sexual abuse and torture of children in the name of Satan. The article also carried with it a big picture of a young boy. I'm sure I don't need to spell out the appeal there. Yes, I know. By the 5th of November, Gab's disgust and the difficulty of sharing a cell with such an individual was beginning to be expressed in his writings. His letter of that evening, saying, It's now 7.30pm. I have stuck this guy Robert for as long as I can. I've told him I'm writing a book, and I also carry on writing whilst he's talking. I've got to tell you, Bob, this guy is brain damage. I got a lot of, oh darling this and, oh darling that, in brackets. I want to punch his head to pieces, can I please? But what I did get makes rather interesting reading, I think. Now here, Gab named a man called Jack Parsons, who had run an amusement arcade, and Oliver had told him that Lenny Smith had once worked for Parsons. Gab continued, Jack Parsons was Lenny's sugar daddy. The amusement arcade in Southend was a cover for dealing in drugs, prostitutions of boys, and the picking up of boys. Lenny used to drug the boys' drinks, buy them sweets, meals, anything. He used to show them how to win on the machines by fiddling, because he had the keys. Robert actually met Lenny Smith when he was 18 years old, at Victoria bus station. Lenny bought him a meal and looked after him, but didn't have sex with him. Robert says that he and Lenny have never had sex. But Lenny arranged for him to get work, i.e. fuck for cash. In June 85, Lenny brought a kid back to the flat that Robert and the guys were sharing. The kid was 13 and a half years of age. Lenny was always bringing kids back from Clapton Pond marshes and passing them around. Another boy aged 15 that Lenny brought back was called Michael. Lenny had sex with him in the marshes and then brought him back to the flat and had sex with him again. Afterwards, he told his friends they could all have him as he was for free. Robert says that he didn't, but also says the boy was well endowed, was drunk, or had been drugged. Gab wrote that Oliver had told him he had carried the can many times for other members of the gang, 
but nevertheless wholeheartedly endorsed paedophilia, saying, He sees nothing wrong in the trade of young men or boys and little boys. Normally, he says little boys are there to be played around with. Just like little girls, little boys show a lot of interest in the male genitalia and laugh and giggle when shown what to do as far as masturbation is concerned. I asked why all this was going on, and Robert told me, Well dear, the more queens the better. I managed to force a grin to be able to keep a sense of confidence going, and said, What about women? We will need women to have babies, won't we? Robert said, Oh, we will have to keep a few, but let's face it, with test tube babies, we won't need them at all. In bold capital letters, Gabbard ended the narrative with, Can I kill him now? Gab was, as I said, a prolific letter writer, trying his best and keen to help here. He would sponge up everything that Oliver came out with, and into a letter it would go, so that the investigating team were getting mail near enough daily from him. Now by the 18th of November, D.I. Brown had moved onto the Sweeney, and although he kept touch with the Orchid team, Detective Superintendent Studley needed a replacement to liaise with Gab, and Sergeant Richard Langley was decided upon. His resume to recommend him for the role included a four-year stint at Scotland Yard's Obscene Publications branch, where he had specialised in tracking down pornography featuring young children and learning how the paedophile mind worked. Langley decided to follow the same patterns Brown had with Gab, again briefing him that he must never lead Oliver in conversation, but should listen carefully to everything and take special notice of any references to young boys, their identities or descriptions he may mention. Gab was completely comfortable with this changeover. In the letter from the following day then, the conversation returned once again to Jason Swift. Oliver said here, that Bailey had been watching the flat where Jason had been living with Haley, I quote, because he wanted to rape her. Cab continued in his letter. I asked him what he really thought had happened on the night of the murder. I asked if the boy was gay, and he said, oh yes, he was always coming to Lenny's flat. I asked him what for, and he said, to play Monopoly. I said, really? And he said, of course not. Lenny looked after him, and had sex with him. So did other gays. Now Oliver continued to plead his innocence over the Jason Swift killing, but claimed he couldn't be sure that he'd not attended the fateful party, though he could find out easily enough. When Gab asked how, Oliver replied, Easy. Cookie has got it all written down in his diaries. Cookie has got diaries that he keeps in his property with all sorts of information written in them. Now, Gab wrote a further letter here that day, as follows. 2pm, Wednesday 29th of November, 1989. Sorry, but this is more information that has only just come to my attention. Tomorrow morning, Cook will place an application to be able to regain his diaries and other papers from his property. I personally don't feel he should be allowed to have these in his possession, not at least until everything has been photocopied from cover to cover. I feel a witness should also be present for the copying. It's just a hunch, but these diaries could be very important. Yours, Fox. Now as Christmas approached, another individual began to occupy Gab's writings. 
Lenny Smith. Oliver had told him that whilst Cook had worked on one funfair, he'd gotten Lenny Smith a job collecting money there. He wrote, Lenny was there for a week, maybe less, when he arrived at the job bringing his nephew with him. Everyone thought the boy indeed was his nephew. By all accounts he was being kept by Lenny, who was charging the men who had sex with the boy, who was about 13 years of age. At the time, the boy was living in Lenny's flat. As time passed, however, Gab did vent his frustrations at not being able to see the fruits of his labours, and aired his despair at the aggravation he was encountering from prison officers and other convicts, saying, Cellmates from my past want to know why I've not got this animal out of my cell. This creates pressure because of rumours that I'm gay due to my long hair, and there are stories of me wanting Robert in my cell for sexual reasons. All this, of course, is absolute rubbish, and they don't, and naturally can't, know the real reasons. If anyone finds out, I'll get a surprise attack, and at the very least, my face will be cut to ribbons. Cons hate grasses, and that's reason enough to cause me harm. But have no fear of me trying to get out of what I'm doing. I'm in till the end. Now it was decided over the Christmas and New Year period that keeping Gab in with Oliver was becoming too risky, always bearing in mind that with the stresses and depression that Gab was already under, he was estranged from his family, something magnified over the festive period, and to have to listen to such a constant diatribe of filth and disturbing recollection, it would bear heavily on anyone. There was always the risk that he would snap under pressure, and either reveal details of the covert operation to Oliver in a temper, or would possibly assault Oliver, as he had done eventually with Bailey. Therefore, a cooling-off period was given for him, and on the 5th of January 1990, Oliver was transferred cells, and for the next six weeks, Gab's services were put on ice, ostensibly to prepare him for Operation Orchid's biggest risk to date. For at 3.45pm on the 15th of February, Gab got a new cellmate, Sidney Cook. The following day, Gab wrote, Since we've been together, we have done nothing but talk. Cook is under the impression that I'm in prison for sexual assaults on underage girls. I'm not sure where he got this idea, but I'm not going to correct this wrong impression, my reason being that it suits my purpose. Cook has, because of my offences, accepted me as one of the boys, i.e. I can be trusted within this group of convicts. Cook continually talks about having sex with children. I'm performing a role, acting a part here. I'm doing this in the hope that Cook will feel able to confide in me to such an extent as to reveal vital information which would lead you to further inquiries. Cook's general conversation always turns to the little girls he's had and the little boys. The youngest girl he claims to have abused at intercourse is six, and the youngest boy, four. Later, after he's had his nightly strip wash, he lies naked on the bed and masturbates while relating stories of child sexual abuse. He also told me several times how good looking I was, and asked if I would like to masturbate him. I explained that I only liked women and young girls. I was disgusted, for I had many visions of him penetrating the bodies of his young victims. I became involved and became angry, but had to control myself. It's very difficult, but I am looking to the future. 
In bold capital letters underneath, Gab had written, Please God, don't ever let this man walk our streets again. Now, after some six months of sharing cells with monsters, Gab's spying mission on Cook was to last just 48 hours. On the 17th of February, he wrote, He becomes physically and sexually excited during these periods of talking about the abuse of children, often fondling himself whilst talking. It is sickening. I've not yet broached the subject of where the dead are buried, but I can tell you there are probably 25 to 30 dead children buried out there. Cook has already admitted to me that he's seen about 15 killed. He boasts of this figure. He treats me as a companion, almost a brother in arms. I therefore have to show a certain knowledge and act a role that not only disgusts me, but revolts me. Having broached the subject, I'm now in a position to return to the same area. With luck, prayer and sheer bloody hard work, I may just be able to persuade Cook that he can relate in some detail where some of these bodies are buried. However, something must have happened, or the final letter must have had a postscript added sometime later, for it concluded, I've just about had it, I'm getting annoyed, and if I stay here any longer, I may do him an injury. That would be pleasurable, but not at all helpful in this case. Get me out, quick. Gab was transferred to another cell the following day, his days as an undercover informant over. Now it was recognised just how valuable Gab had been. The information he'd provided had opened up all sorts of avenues of inquiry, requiring the Orchid Squad to be bolstered in numbers, and Detective Superintendent Studley now realised that if three of Jason's killers had opened up to Gab about such horror, then the chances were that their previous cellmates may have been party to this too. Therefore, a trawl of inmates in prisons throughout the south of the UK was now made, with scores of them visited to see if they could help. Even though most of these visited were on Rule 43 themselves, due to the extent and the type of crimes being investigated here, Orchid detectives were now inundated with offers for informants, and they decided on one who was codenamed Alan Adale. His real name has never been revealed, but back in 1990, he was a convicted rapist serving a five-year stretch and had been codenamed so for his guitar playing and the Irish rebel folk songs he would perform, named after the character in Robin Hood. He soon found himself sharing a cell in Wandsworth with one Leslie Bailey. Going forth then, once a week, a Dale, as we shall call him, met with detectives from Orchid in a porter cabin in the prison grounds, where he would turn upside down his trusty guitar and out from it would fall the scraps of paper that he'd made notes of his conversations with Bailey on. In a short while, Adele had been inundated with names, Bailey having quickly warmed to his cellmate, to the point where Bailey had mentioned at least nine long-since murdered and buried boys, but frustratingly, by first name only. There was a David, Matt, Mickey, George, Paul, Jerry, Johnny, Jimmy, and one who Bailey had referred to as that gypsy kid. He'd also soon begun drawing maps for Adele, though mere rough sketches, of where these bodies were buried. All this was passed to the Orchid team, 
and one of these crude maps referred to a cemetery that had also been detailed in the Gab notebook as a burial site, which the team were convinced, due to a matching general description and a corresponding landmark, was the cemetery in Lee Bridge Road in Hackney. Detectives now decided it was time for action, and visited Bailey in Wandsworth, where he agreed to accompany them to East London. However, it transpired it was not the cemetery in Lee Road at all, from the 21st of May 1990, Bailey led them to the Clapton Common area and to a small synagogue attached to a building there that had formerly been a school for the deaf. There was no sign of any cemetery here though, merely a roughly laid out car park, but it was discovered that around the time Bailey claimed to have buried a body there, and he was notoriously vague about things, so how far back this would have been is unclear, but at the very least the early 1980s. Around the time he had, the car park site had indeed been an old cemetery called the Satmar Cemetery, which had since been bulldozed to make the car park and covered with a two-foot-thick layer of concrete. Nonetheless, three days later, a 40-foot square section of the car park was sectioned off and holes were drilled deep into the ground in the hope that methane fumes given off from any corpse buried there would be released and then would attract the cadaver dogs that had been brought in. Sure enough, the dogs were drawn to one of these holes, and so excavations began. Lasting more than a week, the 40-foot square area was expanded to near enough the size of a tennis court, and though fragments of bone were found as a result of digging, they were ultimately identified as animal bones. Further inquiries revealed, and why this didn't come to light before any digging started is a bit of a mystery that when the car park had been created, huge amounts of the earth from it had been carted off to different landfill sites all over the Essex area. So it was now a pretty much impossible task, because where would you even start after so long? And although Bailey was accurate in his description of the place at the time, he couldn't shed any light on the young victim he claimed to have buried there. To him, it was simply another boy and however it must have crawled at the team to have to leave it, they had to face harsh facts. There was the very real possibility that the squad could get snarled down in a hunt for bodies that they were both unlikely to find and unlikely to identify. He had taken detectives to at least half a dozen sites in the East London area that Orchid detectives thought could possibly match the description of burial sites that the killer had given to Ian Gabb, but Bailey was too vague at any of these sites to justify or even consider any digging. Bailey had also led detectives to a site near his old boarding school in Chipping Onger in Essex, where on the A414 road to North Weald, he directed the party to stop at a thicket near to a white-painted cottage. He told officers that he'd used to play here as a child, and it was also the location where he'd buried another body, another who had been brought to number 36 Ashmead House for a party, an Asian boy of 13 or 14 that Bailey referred to as Hassan. Bailey, though he was unsure of dates, recalled in a disturbing account. He didn't speak, he was a bit frightened. One of the gangs said he'd got him at Victoria. He called him his pet boy. There was about 16 people at the party and everyone was having a good time. It started swinging like. The boy was given coke and whiskey, but there was something put in it and it fizzed up. Everybody piled in. 
It excites me to hear their voices. They said the boy might recognise us. He didn't cry at all. All I could see were red marks on his neck. The others didn't seem shocked. They were standing about, saying nothing at all. I went back into the other room and got myself a drink. I was drinking Carlsberg. It was quiet, but someone put a record on. I walked home that night feeling a bit scared and nervous-like, killing the boy. As with Barry, Bailey then claimed the following day he had been ordered to dispose of the body. He had chosen Onga because it was familiar territory to him and claimed that he had dragged the boy's body into the thicket there and buried it in a shallow grave. I didn't dig deep, just skimmed the earth and covered it with twigs and dirt mixed in, he'd said. Now Bailey was certain about the location and after wandering about the thicket for a few moments, he indicated a spot to his escorts that was then marked with a pile of stones. To test Bailey on this, he was then led out of the thicket and Detective Constable Gary Lyons moved the stones some 12 to 15 feet. But when Bailey was brought back in some time later, he expressed surprise that the stones had been moved. It was enough to convince police that there was another body buried there. But digging was ultimately abandoned for the time being, however, and now a change of tactics was opted for. Though they were convinced there were other lost boys out there that Bailey and his cronies were responsible for, vague first names, dates and locations made it a near impossible task. So they now looked at crimes they did have substantial information on. And the name at the top of the pile? Barry Lewis. His had been connected to the killing of Jason Swift for four plus years by that point, the genesis of Operation Stranger connected by the points that I made out in Barry's story. But also, remember the first page of Ian Gabb's notebook, that first line he'd made out that had convinced Bob Brown that there was substance here and that Operation Orchid had been founded from, which I repeat here. First party, September 85, Barry Lewis, aged 6. The squad had been told that Bailey had indicated that he wanted to turn Queen's evidence at the Jason Swift trial, but had been dissuaded from doing so by his lawyers. Seeing as he had given the more realistic account of Jason's death, and had admitted disposing of his body, plus had given no staunch resistance against any questioning, he was felt to be the weakest link out of the lot of them, and so plans were made to remove Bailey from Wandsworth Prison for questioning about Barry Lewis on the 5th of June. But the day before, there was an unexpected bonus. Two detectives were having the now standard meeting with Adele in the porter cabin at Wandsworth that day, when he told them, he's told me quite definitely that the murders of Jason Swift and Barry Lewis are connected. And he said something about breaking down and getting a lift to a garage and having something on the back seat. Now, it was feasible that Bailey could have embellished this after seeing the Crime Watch reconstruction four years previously, but come on, there are coincidences, and then there is beyond the realms of all credibility that he couldn't be involved, especially as the photo fit or the artist's impression that had been created by Keith Wielden back in 1985 bore more than a passing resemblance to Leslie Bailey. The following day, Bailey was taken from Wandsworth to Stoke Newington Police Station, 
were in the presence of his solicitor, Janet Rolt, and Doris Rowan, a representative from Mencap, acting as an observer. Bailey began to tell a familiar story of working on a car outside Ashmead House on the day in question. He went right around the houses with the tale this time, and detectives could feel that he was not quite ready to open up and admit any culpability, although he did mumble when they showed him a photograph of Barry. Yeah, that's the boy. In a later interview, he was to admit to Barry's killing, and even demonstrated to Detective Constable Gary Lyons how he had killed him, using the very same method that had been kept back from publication exactly how the pathologist's report on Barry had claimed he had died, with one hand placed over the nose and mouth of the officer, whilst the fingers of the other hand were stuck firmly into the top of his head. What more confirmation do you need, eh? Now that must have been a chilling enough incident, truly and literally touched by evil there, eh? But the story Bailey was to come out with concerning Barry was much, much worse. The following account is somewhat sanitised. I have no desire to be graphic. I'm sure that the full horror will be more than apparent. And I once again warn, the following account contains disturbing content. Though Bailey was unforthcoming about who exactly had enticed Barry off the street in that 500-yard journey home that Sunday September afternoon almost five years before, from the account he gave detectives, it appeared that he was lured into a car with the promise of sweets. Once inside, was then driven almost 10 miles across the river to East London, to number 36 Ashmead House in Hackney. By the time that journey ended, who knows what the poor boy must have thought by this point, except fear. Part of Bailey's account about what happened is as follows. They said there was going to be a party. What kind of party, Les? A gangbang. Who's there? I knew seven or eight of them, but there were more. Where was Barry then? He's in one of the bedrooms. How did he get to the flat? One of the gang brought him, held his hand, gave him sweets and that. How was Barry? Miserable. He said he wanted to go home. Was he drugged? Someone gave him a big round thing. It looked like a sweet. Then what happened? That same bloke was cuddling him, like a woman holding a baby, making sure he was alright. Was he crying? He wanted to go home, yeah. The bloke told him, Don't worry, you'll get to go home soon. What then? Everybody had the boy. You too? Yeah. Did he struggle? He was screaming. Someone had their hand over his mouth. Did anyone leave? Not until after. I was still in the bedroom. What about Barry? I thought he was dead. We couldn't find no pulse. So what did you do? I went home. That dialogue that I've just repeated here is somewhat sanitised, and it's one of the foulest, most heart-wrenching things I have ever come across whilst researching true crime. I apologise for how disturbing it is, and it is something I take no pleasure in repeating. But as is my maxim here on the show, I want you to feel how I felt, and that chilled my blood and broke my heart. There is no other word for individuals, I don't even want to class them as people, who commit such atrocities as described, except monsters, there really isn't. And this isn't just Bailey, he describes seven or eight of them, 
perhaps more. I don't even want to think about it, for it's truly the stuff nightmares are made of. Six years old, out playing happily just a few hours before, and now drugged up to the eyeballs, having been raped and abused, and left for dead, indeed believed dead. Poor, poor little boy. Bailey had then been ordered by the gang to dispose of the body the day after Barry's party, he had claimed in interview. They told me if I didn't do it, that they'd do to me what they did to the boy. So, early in the afternoon of Monday the 16th of September 1985, whilst a mass search for Barry was well underway in South London, his limp body, wrapped head to foot in a blue blanket, was carried down the stairs and placed onto the back seat of a Ford Granada car belonging to Dave, the minicab driver, a lodger of uncles, and incidentally, the same car that Bailey claimed to have been repairing when he came out with his bullshit story concerning Jason Swift's death. And he then drove off to a predetermined location, the Waltham Abbey area, an area he knew from his schooling. When he was only about a mile from the spot he'd chosen, just off the crooked mile, he glanced once again in his rearview mirror at the body on the back seat and nearly careered off the road. The corpse was sitting up on the back seat, staring straight at him, for Barry wasn't dead. Now, this was a point that puzzled detectives. How could a small boy, so heavily drugged that he had appeared dead, wake up and then appear to slip in and out of consciousness? A leading toxicologist from Guy's Hospital in London was consulted on this point, and he concluded that the transfer of Barry's body from the stuffy, squalid flat into fresh air, and coupled with the undulation of the moving car, could explain how the boy was temporarily revitalised. With so much diazepam, tamazepam and desmethyldiazepam still in his system though, the boy would have been like a walking zombie, unable to flee or even speak, and this revitalization would have been temporary. Bailey's panic at seeing this had barely subsided when the Granada sputtered to a halt, run out of petrol, and he was forced to pull it up onto a grass verge near Travers Piggery. Rummaging around in the boot of the vehicle, he found a small red petrol can, and then, lifting a dazed and mumbling Barry out of the car, started walking back down the crooked mile in search of a garage. Now, Bailey confirmed here something detectives had suspected for years. He had hitched, sticking out his thumb each time he heard a car approaching, and eventually they were picked up and given a lift down to the Abbey filling station by a couple who had expressed concern about Barry, seeing right away that something was up with him. However, they accepted Bailey's explanation that he simply wasn't well, and this was the after-effects of a drug that he'd been given. Horrifically, this was half the truth. The couple had then dropped them at the filling station by the roundabout at the bottom of the Crooked Mile, where Bailey had propped Barry up against the four-star petrol pump as he filled up with two pounds worth of fuel into the can. He had told the attendant, Wendy Hancock, that they'd run out of petrol just up the crooked mile, which later gave a cause to believe that the man had local knowledge, which indeed Bailey did. He then picked Barry up once again and began walking back up towards where the car had abandoned. 
Now this was where Keith Wheeldon had picked them up and had dropped them back at the car, driving off as Bailey was filling up the Granada. Keith had ultimately been mistaken in his identification of a Talbot Horizon car. Now, I mentioned in Barry's story that as Keith Wheeldon drove away, he wasn't to see the boy tapping feebly on the window, but I do believe this is a genuine possibility. It perhaps being Barry's last act, fading in and out of consciousness, the drugs in his system preventing him from speaking, screaming or fleeing from doing anything else but tap on that window. They say his last act, and it more than likely was, for only minutes later, Barry Lewis was dead, though where exactly this occurred cannot be established. I would suggest more than likely, it was at that very spot before the car had even set off again. Part of Bailey's confession reads as follows, and once again, the following contains disturbing content. I killed him, then I dug the hole. Why did you pick that place? It was the only place I knew. How did you know it? Used to go to school round that way. Why did you kill him? Like I said, they threatened me. You always do what they say. Like, ever since I was a kid, I've always done what people tell me to. Where did you kill Barry? In the car. I pulled the blanket over his head and suffocated him. How did you suffocate him? Put my hands over his face and on the back of his head and the blanket over him. Did he say anything? No. Did he struggle? No, because he was still a bit groggy. Did it take long? Not all that long, about a minute. He still had drugs in him. How did you know he was dead? He didn't move. How did you take him into the field? In the blanket. It wasn't heavy. Was the hole deep? About a foot. Did you fill it in? Yeah, with a spade, just covered over. What about Barry's clothes? I took them off at the hole and I brought them back. How did you leave him in the grave? I left him with his knees half bent and put his arms across his chest. On the 12th of July 1990, Bailey was taken back once again to the Kingsmead estate by three orchid detectives as well as Janet Lyons and Doris Rowan, because it was important that the route he had taken to dispose of Barry's body was established, and as none of the three detectives or the two women had ever been to the field at Munkham's Park, ergo they could not be accused of leading the suspect there, for he had not yet been charged. Sure enough, Bailey directed the minibus carrying the group from the Kingsmead estate to Waltham Abbey, where he noted that the pumps at the Abbey filling station were now a different colour as they passed it, and then directed the party to turn off up onto Munkham's past Eagle Lodge, directing them to stop just before Clapgate Lane. Pointing to 40 Acre Field, Bailey said, I think it's that field there, near one of the big oaks. Leading the party along the southern edge of the field, Bailey eventually indicated a certain point which was marked, and when this was the following day checked against the stringent scene of crime notes that had been taken back in December 1985, the measurements then carefully calculated once again by the very same scene of crime officer, Bailey was found to have been just 45 yards out. On the 21st of July, Keith Wheeldon and other witnesses attended an identity parade at Brixton Police Station 
and although he'd been unshakable in his accounts of what had happened during his encounter with Bailey in more than a dozen statements, and even under hypnosis, neither he nor any of the other witnesses could pick out Bailey on the identity parade, though bearing in mind this was almost five years after the event, and since then Bailey had lightened his hair and had shaved off his moustache. However much a positive identification would have helped the case, it was already strong enough that the lack of this was largely immaterial. And nine days after this parade, on the 30th of July 1990, Leslie Patrick Bailey appeared at Highbury Corner Magistrates Court in North London, charged with the murder of six-year-old Barry Lewis, and was then remanded immediately back into police custody for questioning concerning other crimes. For Bailey had begun to talk about other things also. Detective Superintendent Studley now decided on a divide-and-conquer strategy for the rest of those concerned, Cook, Oliver and Barrel, moving them throughout the prison system. Cook was sent to Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight, Oliver to Dartmoor and Bailey to an undisclosed location. The Orchid squad deliberately wanted the rest of the gang to think the worst of the others, and by not being close by, and so knowing what others involved could possibly be saying, it would, they hoped, begin to sow seeds of suspicion and mistrust in their minds, creating the fear of further discovery, fresh charges, and longer sentences. He now also cleverly used the tabloid newspapers, knowing these would be read by the likes of this lot, and made sure that a mixture of truths, half-truths and downright inaccuracies were contained in any articles that appeared concerning the Orchid investigation. For example, several were published that linked Orchid's work with the death of Jason Swift, filled with such details as, quote, as a result of two separate tip-offs, whilst another article in July 1990 claimed that police were investigating the murders of up to 25 children and revealing Orchid without revealing it, claimed that this was as a result of having received a letter from a serving prisoner who had shared a cell with a man who had boasted of killing 20 plus children. One of the more chilling angles that attracted press interest was the suggested possibility of snuff movies being involved, and the unthinkable possibility that had been suggested that Jason, and possibly Barry's deaths, may have been filmed for sale on the lucrative international paedophile market. It had been suggested by a Brit who had been arrested in Amsterdam for possession of child pornography, and speculation that this was possibly true was not actively discouraged by the Orchid team, for again, it kept the names in the paper. Privately, they were as satisfied as they could possibly be that this was just a mere rumour for out of the intense load of documentation the investigation had amassed, thousands and thousands of statements and other paperwork, there had never once been any mention or even a suggestion of this, and it was ultimately discounted as a possibility. But such headlines did cause pain for people like Jason's mother, Joan Swift, who said regarding the possibility that her son's rape and murder had been filmed, how could anybody make a film of the death of Jason or any boy? And even worse, how could anyone gain any pleasure from watching something like that? I had to sit through the trial and listen to what those bastards did to my son. 
and now someone could be watching him die over and over again. I just want him to rest in peace. Poor woman. Sadly, Joan, there are many sick and depraved individuals on this earth who would indeed film something like that, and equally, many who would gain pleasure, enjoyment, even sexual arousal from such a thing, abhorrent beyond all belief. This campaign of disinformation had multiple aims and effects. It had the effect of keeping the boys' names and their deaths in the press many years after they'd happened, in the hope that someone may just suddenly recall what may turn out to be a vital piece of information. For example, seeing Barry getting into a car that could be identified, or a sighting that could place Jason firmly with Lenny Smith or Sidney Cook. It would also leave those concerned with that nagging doubt about their partners in crime and the thought posed to themselves. Hang on, I wonder if he's saying this. It was to be ten and a half months later, on Friday the 14th of June 1991, that Vanetta Lewis stood in the public gallery of court number six of the Old Bailey, about to come face to face with her son's killer. One can only imagine the trepidation she must have felt over the preceding year, even despite the distraction of giving birth to another child, Peishi, that March, and which came to a head at 9am when she was collected by Detective Constable Neil Vowden. By the time she arrived at court, the press were already waiting, and as she made her way inside, she told reporters, I need to see his face, but whatever he gets... It won't be what he deserves. When proceedings began, the clerk of the court read out the murder charge, to which Bailey replied quietly, Guilty. Counsel for the prosecution, John Nutting QC, then outlined to the court the circumstances of Barry's disappearance in September 1985, before moving on to the discovery of his decomposed body in the Moncombs Park field early that December. Vanetta, Composed to this point, now began to well up, but by the time Bailey's harrowing confessions were made about Barry's party, details which I'll not repeat again here, she was weeping uncontrollably, saying only, I didn't know, I didn't know. Vanetta was here only for the first time, hearing the full horrific details of Barry's death. You can't even begin to imagine it, can you? Bailey's defence counsel, Stephen Batten QC, could say little in mitigation before sentencing, outlining to the court that his client was, I quote, unable to comprehend the enormity of his actions, but he does regret them. He also mentioned that Bailey had been introduced to homosexual orgies by others, including Lenny and Donald Smith, and where he had subsequently met cohorts Robert Oliver and Sidney Cook. Those meetings were probably far more responsible for his appearance in the court today than anything inside himself, Mr. Batten had added. Ordering Bailey to stand in the dock, presiding Mr. Justice Dennison told him, Anyone who has listened to what you and others did to this six-year-old child before his death can have only one reaction, a combination of sickness, horror and indeed despair that any human being can sink to those depths. 
Leslie Patrick Bailey was then sentenced to life imprisonment, to which he did not respond before he was taken back to prison. Vanetta Lewis left the court in floods of tears, saying, At least it's a help to know that he's away, and that he won't be able to do it to anyone else's kid. Following Bailey's life sentence, detectives did have one final push at digging, and began searching the thicket in Onga where Bailey claimed to have buried Hassan. But despite utilising a small ground-penetrating radar company named Sightscan to assist, nothing was found. Now, there was a virtually identical thicket on the other side of the white cottage, but this was never searched. Bailey himself was also later to claim that he had later been told that the body had been moved by another party-goer, though again, this could never be confirmed. It was the vagueness of Bailey's confessions that ultimately ran to some 2,000 typed pages, and through which information had to be patiently coaxed out of him, that was to frustrate detectives. His descriptions of vile sex killings were just too colourful, too vivid in parts to be made up, and they convinced officers that he was genuinely recollecting events that had happened in his monotone delivery, but perhaps out of apparent embarrassment, perhaps out of an inability to articulate, he was vague about the all-important things, like names or dates, even as we've heard some locations, to progress these accounts any further. But overall, the interviews with Bailey left detectives convinced that there were several more lost boys out there. One boy in particular that they'd long since linked to Jason Swift and Barry Lewis, and one that Leslie Bailey had also now begun discussing. And his is a tale that we shall come on to in the next part of The Lost Boys. Now due to busy times, and as I said at the start, plus it's Patreon episode week next week, so part 5 of The Lost Boys will be slightly delayed, and coming to you in about 2 weeks time. For which also, I've enlisted the help of Jess Carter to bring you, as it works for a collaboration for us, and it's been a while since we have. I thank you so kindly for sticking through with the tale. Harrowing as it really is, I know, it's just one that I feel I can't scrimp on, and that requires telling in the depth that I have. I shall also save my own thoughts for the conclusion of the tale, go back and pick it to bits then, but that's a ways off yet. With that, I shall wrap up here for this time around, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and myself, and Jess Carter of course, will speak to you very soon. Thanks very much for joining me in the MOG, stay safe all, keep your loved ones safe, and goodbye for now.